following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Today we're going to look at the story of the feeding of the 4,000. And the reason, of course, then I'm saying that we're going to get the sense that we've been here before is because this story is almost exactly like the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at back in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. I mean, they are almost identical. The, the only differences in the two stories are really the numbers when you get right down to it. And I made this little chart just to kind of help you compare the two. But as you look at the two stories, you see four different numbers that change. And one is the number of people. In the one story, it's 5,000. The next story, it's four. Uh, number two is the loaves. In the first story, there's five loaves for 5,000 people. In this story, there's seven loaves for 4,000 people. Uh, number of fish changes from two to a few. So we don't know exactly how many, but you got a few fish. And then the number of baskets changes, uh, what they have left over from 12 to 7. But outside of those differences right there, you, you really have two stories that are pretty much the same. Except for the fact that they are 100% and completely different. They're, they're not different in terms of content because clearly the content is very similar. But they are different in terms of purpose. Mark is going in a, a completely different direction with this story than he went with the last story. And so to help you see his purpose here in Mark chapter 8, let's begin just like we normally do by just walking through the text. And as we walk through the text, we'll try to make sure we understand what's going on here so that we can rightly understand Mark's purpose. Mark begins this scene with a phrase that kind of vaguely places this story within a context. He says, in those days. And if you think back just prior to what's happened here, Jesus there in Mark 7 has made a purposeful trip up to, to Syrophoenicia, to the area of Tyre and Sidon, to meet this woman who, whose daughter is possessed by a demon and he's healed her. He's then made a second purposeful trip down to the Decapolis, that area on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, dominated by these ten Gentile cities. He's gone to the Decapolis, and there he has met a man who was deaf. He's healed him there. Jesus, in those two stories, is doing what no normal Jewish guy is ever going to do. He's going to purposely go and minister in these mainly Gentile areas. And so Mark now sort of gives us the idea that maybe it's during that time frame that this scene that we're going to read this morning is happening, that maybe this scene is happening also in a Gentile area, in which case Jesus is once again doing for the Gentiles what he has done for the Jews. And that may be the case. I don't know. I'm just pointing it out so you can see it. The phrase, in those days, can really go back to any point you want here in the past. But regardless, the situation is pretty similar to last time. You see here that again, a great crowd has gathered to Jesus, right? And again, this crowd has nothing to eat. And I don't think it's because the crowd was irresponsible and hadn't brought food to eat necessarily. You see that Jesus says in verse 2 that they had been with him for three days. Three days out in the wilderness listening to Jesus teach them. So if they initially brought food, those, those provisions are gone. And so again, Jesus has compassion on the crowd just like he did the first time. And again, he points out the problem to his disciples. And I want you to make a mental note of that fact. That he, he identifies a problem. Hey, they're, they're hungry. They've been with me three days. They don't have anything to eat. I, I don't want to send them away like hungry. He, he points out to the disciples because 
the reality is that if Jesus recognizes a problem, he, in himself, has more than enough wisdom and power to solve it on his own, correct? Right? Yes, the answer is yes, okay? He, he doesn't need the disciples' help in figuring out what to do. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need them to provide an answer. And yet, despite that, just like last time, he puts the problem to his disciples. Just hold on to that for a moment. He says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far. This is the problem. And and it's clear to the disciples, if it's not clear to you, it is clear to the disciples, that Jesus is asking them to suggest a solution to this problem. And, and, And again, I want us just to just pause and at this point, put ourselves in the story if we could. If you were a disciple there at this moment as Jesus is pointing out this problem to you, what would your response be? I mean, just think about the history. Think about where we've been up to this point in Mark. Wouldn't our response be something to the effect of, hey, Jesus, um, why don't you like multiply food again like you did last time? I mean, because you were you did it before with more people. We saw that. And, uh, yeah, why, why don't you do it? We were there. We were amazed by it. That was, that was awesome. Why don't you do that again? Was there anyone in the room who had any different answer? Please say no. Okay? I'm serious. Like, if you are the disciples of that moment and Jesus is coming to you saying, listen, uh, there's all these people. I don't want to send them away hungry. What should we do? and you saw him feed 5,000 before, wouldn't you automatically go back to that thought and say, this is what we should do? That, that this is the obvious answer is so abundantly clear. It just, it pains us to read verse 4 because that is not their answer. No, they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It, it's, it's a rhetorical response. What they're really saying is, it is not possible to feed this many people with bread here in this desolate place. That's that's the real thrust of the response. Jesus, it can't be done. It just can't be done, Jesus. Like, are you crazy? It's not possible. Now, Now, to be fair, to be fair, this may be a crowd of Gentiles, as I already pointed out. And so it is possible that these Jewish men and and some of their thoughts toward the Gentiles think that there's no way that Jesus could do with these people what he did with those people before. So maybe that's the case, but I I don't get that sense from the text. I don't get the sense that the issue for them is that it's the group of people's problem. It's like because they're Gentiles, we can't feed them. No, I get the real sense that that, that what they have here, what we're seeing here, is a response of utter unbelief in all or despite all that they have seen and heard up to this point, including an event that was exactly like this one. Utter unbelief. It is not possible. They don't believe. And note that because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Now, From this point, the rest of this particular story goes just like you know it's going to go, okay? So Jesus asked the disciples, well, how many loaves do you have? 
They say seven, which is about seven more than Jesus actually needs here, okay? And he, he tells everybody to sit down just like last time, and like last time he takes the loaves and he gives thanks and he breaks them and he gives them to the disciples to distribute. Uh, they find a few small fish, he blesses them, tells the disciples to pass those out too. And just like last time, all the people eat, all the people are satisfied. In fact, there are leftovers again, and so they collect what's left, and, and now they end up with seven baskets full. And now it, it, Mark tells us at this point that the number of people is about uh, 4,000 this time, and so Jesus sends them the way. He gets into a boat with the disciples, and they go to the district of Dalmanutha. That's the story. So, so what was Mark's purpose this time? You don't know yet, right? <laughs> Because that's good, because you shouldn't know yet, because in reality, here's the, here's the difference this time, the story's not done. That was like the first part. You see, what I think Mark is doing here is another example of everyone's favorite Sunday word, intercalation. Yes, very good. Okay, so, so we haven't talked about intercalation in a while, so for the sake of those of you who have forgotten or for those of you who don't know, let me give you a quick reminder. Intercalation is a literary technique. Okay, it's used by authors and storytellers as a, a specific way of, of making a point. What you do is you take your main story, we'll call it story A, you take your main story that you're trying to tell, and in the middle you insert a secondary story, story B. And the reason you do that is because there's something about story B that helps you rightly understand story A. Do you, do you get that? Okay, understand the concept here? This is, this is called intercalation. And Mark enjoys using intercalation quite a bit. He, he's done it several times, and he will continue doing it throughout his book. And this is another example of that. Because here now, in the middle of this story of the feeding of the 4,000, comes this short little account of a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Just out of the blue, boom, here you go. Let's talk about this argument that these two have. Mark says that the Pharisees came to Jesus and they began to argue with him. They're not just accusing him this time. They're engaging him in some kind of, a, of an argument. And Mark emphasizes exactly what it is that they want and why they're doing this. They are seeking from him a sign from heaven. You know those words, those are important, underline them if you like to do that. They're seeking a sign from heaven, why? To test him. Now, let's stop and make sure you understand what's going on here. Let, let's talk about this word sign for a moment. Because when you first read that, you might be thinking, well, Jesus has given them lots of signs, hasn't he? I mean, every time he heals someone, every time he casts out a demon, when he feeds like thousands of people with nothing, I mean, aren't all of these signs that is not what they're asking for. Okay, Mark is very specific here in using a different word. That not, He's not talking about a miracle. No, he's talking about something much stronger, an idea that, that's much, much more enge uh, engaged than, than just a regular miracle. No, this word that he's using here carries the idea of something almost apocalyptic in nature. We're talking like a sign. Like not I healed you. No, we're talking like the sky turns red and thunder and lightning and a sign. That is why I think they call it specifically a sign from heaven as opposed to a sign from God because God is the only person who can give signs like that. He's just making sure that, that they, uh, excuse me, 
The Pharisees are making sure that Jesus understands exactly what it is they want. They want some kind of divine, uh, earth-shattering confirmation that this man, Jesus, really is from God, that he really is the Messiah, that he really can do the things he says he can do. They want something big, some kind of thing like that. And, and, and if you're wondering, like, well, can you maybe make that a little more practical? Sure, let me give you an imagined illustration of that. Remember that the Pharisees and their desire to have the Messiah come, their number one, I think, desire in the Messiah coming back to Israel is that he would come in and overthrow the Romans. Okay, we've talked about that before. They want a conquering Messiah. They want a king. They want a guy who's going to ride in on a horse and lead the armies to battle, overthrow the Romans, and restore Israel to its, its number one place, the, a place of prominence in the world. And so when they ask him for a sign from heaven, they might be envisioning something like this, that, that they want Jesus all of a sudden to make the skies turn red. You hear the rumble of thunder that he begins to float into Jerusalem, that he's bringing lightning down on all the Roman garrisons, that he's throwing them out, that he walks up to the mount, he takes charge, he plants the flag, I'm king. That's what they're asking for. Okay? Does that help you understand a little better what it is they're wanting? They're wanting something huge. Well, not too big to them, but huge from our perspective. And so that's what they mean. They're not looking for a, another healing. They've seen lots of healings. They're not looking for another exorcism. They've seen lots of them. They want something bigger. And the reason Mark says that they're asking for this is to test them, test him. They want him to convince them that he is the Christ. They get to be the judge of that. You, Jesus, must convince us that you really are this Christ, as if they get to stand in judgment on that fact, right? As if, as if somehow they are the final judges of his true identity. And so what you're really seeing here in this interchange is the fact that the Pharisees are so rooted in their unbelief that despite all that they've seen and heard, and make no mistake, they have seen and heard a lot. Never forget that fact. Despite Everything they've seen and everything they've heard, they still refuse to believe. And I love how Mark records Jesus' response to this. He sighed deeply. And this is a very unusual Greek word. You don't see it very I think this might be the only time it shows up in the New Testament. I think it only shows up a few other times outside of, of biblical uh, literature. But it's one of those words that doesn't refer to, to like angry sighing. Whatever that's like, I don't know. It's like exasperation, like, ugh. Like, can you picture Jesus at this point? As he's had this conversation with them. This is not the first conversation he's had with the Pharisees, and now they're like, give us a sign from heaven. Like, if he had hair to pull out, which I'm sure he had hair, but uh, that, that's exactly what he's doing here. Can you picture it? He sighed deeply, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign can't they believe? Can't they believe based on all that they've seen and heard? Why do we have to go to this extreme? If, if you still haven't believed after all I've done, after all I've said, is this going to change anything? And so he says to them, truly I say to you, 
no sign will be given to this generation. I mean, there will be a day when it'll be, you know, red skies and all that stuff's going to happen, but <laughs> not to this generation. And so he left them. <laughs> he just left them. He got into the boat and he went to the other side. He's just done with them. He just, he just leaves. And now, now that you've seen that little quick vignette, notice verse 14. Because after feeding 4,000 people and after this argument with the Pharisees about apocalyptic signs from heaven, what do you think will be the number one topic of conversation in the boat on the way back over that the disciples should be having with one another? Clearly, it should be dinner. Right? Clearly, dinner makes the most sense at this point. And it's really, it's, it's hilarious if it wasn't so sad. It really would be because they're worrying about the fact that they have forgot to bring enough food with them. They only have one loaf. I mean, how? How can 13 people possibly eat from just one loaf, right? Are you picking up on the irony here in the situation? In Mark 6, I, I'm not a math major, so I use the calculator for this. In Mark 6, the starting ratio of loaves to people was 1 to 1,000. Okay? In Mark 8, the ratio of loaves to people was 1 to 571. We're now, in, in both of those cases, Jesus was just fine feeding everyone. And now the ratio is all the way down to 1 to 13. Like, if I'm Jesus at this moment, <laughs> I was thinking about this this morning. If I'm Jesus at this moment, which thank God I'm not Jesus, I, I would have said, give me the loaf. I would have taken the loaf and right there would have, like I would have, like, multiplied it, sunk the boat. While they were swimming around, I would have continued to multiply it so an island of bread formed in the middle of the Sea of Galilee that they were like crawling up on to get away from the waters. I would have then walked on the water around and been like, are you stupid? <laughs> you see what I mean now when I say that Jesus is not like me and we are all thankful for that. I mean, seriously, this, this is, is the situation that they are now discussing after what we've seen so far here in Mark 8. And, and, and just notice how he responds. He interrupts their conversation, and he gives them what Mark describes as a caution. He, he cautions them. He says, watch out. And I'd love to know the tone of this. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And and obviously we don't know exactly how this is playing out in the boat, but I get the sense that Jesus interrupts them. He makes this kind of enigmatic statement, and then he must go back to whatever he was doing before. You know, maybe he's just like looking off into the distance. Because, because as you look at the next verse in verse 16, the disciples go back right after that to discussing the fact that they still don't have any bread. As if they heard him say the word leaven, and now that's all they heard, and they're like, oh, he's worried about the bread too. You know, <laughs> what are we going to do? And so Jesus, aware of this, Mark tells us, interrupts them again with a question. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And if you're a parent, like, <laughs> you can probably get the, the tone there easily, right? Like, why? Clearly, they did not understand the warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Do you understand it? I haven't explained it yet, so maybe not. And, and so, uh, you know, we've seen the Pharisees a little bit throughout the, uh, 
gospel so far. We're going to keep seeing them to the end. We've only really seen Herod one time when he killed John the Baptist. So the question I'm about to ask you may be difficult for you to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do the Pharisees and Herod have in common that the disciples should avoid? Okay, that's the question. Because this is what Jesus is saying to them. Listen, you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and you beware of the leaven of Herod. Apparently it's the same thing. Beware of all of it. So what do these two, this individual and this group, have in common that the the, the disciples need to avoid? And for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the answer. They don't believe. Purposefully. They are purposefully making a choice to not believe that Jesus is the Christ despite all that they've seen and heard. I mean, just think about it. When, when Herod heard, back in uh, Mark chapter 6, when Herod heard about all that Jesus was saying and doing, what was the, the first thing he decides about Jesus? Well, it must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. I mean, John the Baptist was a great guy. Herod believes that more than anyone. He's, he's, he's sad to put him to death because he really does like him and he kind of fears him as a prophet. But John didn't do anything like Jesus does. And yet when Herod hears about the mighty works of Jesus, oh, it's got to be John the Baptist, clearly. The Pharisees are in the room multiple times as Jesus is healing, casting out demons, doing amazing things. And they say, oh, he must be the spawn of Satan. He he is only doing this because Satan is giving him the power to do it. I'm sorry. Neither Herod nor the Pharisees are stupid. They're making choices. They are choosing to reject the truths that they are seeing and hearing with their own eyes and their own ears so that they can reject Jesus as the Christ. It is a purposeful rejecting of Jesus in unbelief. And the disciples, they clearly didn't get this warning. They don't understand that Jesus is warning them about the dangers of unbelief. And clearly here, they are not believing, right? I mean, from the moment Jesus turned to them and pointed out the problem of of, of feeding all these people, we have seen their unbelief on display in this passage, have we not? What what should we do? We've got 4,000 people here. They, They need to eat. What should we do? Well, it can't be done. It's impossible, Jesus, to feed these people. Uh, uh, Now they're in the boat. Oh, no, we only have one loaf. How can we feed all 13 of us with just this one loaf? Even Jesus is worried about it, apparently, they're thinking. It's clear the disciples are still blind. They're blind. They've been with Jesus all this time, and yet they are still blind blind. And it is at this point now, now that their blindness is like out there, right? There's no hiding the blindness now. Now that the blindness is out there, it's at this point that we're going to get a series of, of, I'm labeling them as six questions from Jesus to his disciples that will, I think, make Mark's purpose here very, very clear and why he's telling the story. Number one, he says to them, do you not yet perceive or understand? Don't, Don't you get it? Don't and, and you, if, you, if you're smart, if you're a good student, you're going, well, perceive or understand what? Well, I'll tell you what. It's who I am. If you're Jesus, he's like, don't you get it? Don't you understand who you're with? Don't you understand what I am, what I can do? Don't you understand me yet? 
Because true faith always begins with a right understanding and recognition of who Jesus really is. He's the promised Savior, the Christ. He is God come in human form, and he's in the boat with them. Don't they understand that? Apparently not. Number two, he says, are your hearts hardened? Because, because those with hardened hearts can't perceive or understand. They just can't. You know, those who want to come to Jesus demanding that he meet their expectations, they're not going to find Jesus to be anything close to what they're wanting, ever. It's, it's people who come to Jesus sort of like the, the Syrophoenician woman who are okay with being dogs in his presence, if that's what it means, right? I mean, whatever, whatever Jesus says about them, this is true. God, I am, I am everything you say and worse. God, I, whatever, I, I am dependent on your grace. It's only those people whose hearts are softened to recognize who they really are and who Jesus really is who ever come to understand him correctly. Uh, number three, he asks, a, I'm breaking these up, a series of questions. Having eyes, do you not see? Number four, having ears, do you not hear? Number five, I'm inserting this, and having memory, do you not remember? And th these are three questions that are designed to show them the truth that has been so clearly set before them. It can't get any closer or clearer than Jesus himself. He's personally present before them. They're designed to do that. And so, so Jesus like gives them uh, uh, these statements. He's like, hey, listen, you've seen me. Don't you see? You, you've heard me. Haven't you heard? You've experienced me. Don't you remember this? And so he reminds them of just these two huge incidents that come along there. He's like, hey, look, guys, guys, think. When I broke the, the bread for the 5,000, how many baskets did you take up? And they're like, 12. I hope that's how they answered. When, when I broke the bread for the 4,000, how many, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they're like, seven. And so Jesus ends with his questions where he started the sixth and final big question here, do you not yet understand? The fact of the matter is, folks, they don't. They've been with Jesus all this time, and they still don't understand. But there's something in me that thinks, it's like ending on a cliffhanger almost, you gotta wait till February to find out what happens here. There's something in me that thinks that this incident might be the turning point for these guys. Like, this is like the watershed moment in, in, in their time with Jesus. I mean, they spent months and months with him, and they're still, you're like, you're like we're confused. How can you not see this? But, but they're there. They're with him. They've got all this stuff that they're dealing with on their own, so I'm trying not to be too judgmental of them, but... But this, I think, may be the moment that is the turning point for them because I think this might be the moment where the disciples finally begin to see. Because as Mark begins this next subsection, and if you don't know what that means, I'm sorry, you'll have to come back some other time and hear that. But as Mark begins this next subsection, he begins with a really weird story. You're, you're there in Mark 8. Just look at the next paragraph, okay? I don't have it up here. You've got to use a Bible. It's got paper, Okay? He begins with a really weird story. He begins with the story of a blind man being healed. Now, if you will, quickly peruse that paragraph, okay? Just skim it real fast. Chris, I'm not trying to steal any of your thunder in February here, okay? He, 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 he meets this blind man, 
and the blind man wants to be healed. And so what does Jesus do? He, he heals him, right? And so he's like, can you see now? Now, I think this, I'm pretty sure, I didn't study ahead, but I think this may be the first and maybe the only time Jesus kind of does like a, a check with the person he's healing to make sure it worked. And what does the man say when he is, when Jesus asks this question? He's like, well, I can see men, but they're like trees walking. Meaning, well, I got some sight back, but it's not right. And so what does Jesus do then? He heals them a second time. And now this time, the guy can see great. And we're all left going, um, <laughs> did, did, did you mess up the first time? Like, like, how do you process that, right? Like, did he doesn't even have to do any of the things he does. He could have just healed him without even meeting the guy. So it's not a matter of power. Why does Jesus purposely take us through this like two-step thing here? Look at the next paragraph. In the next paragraph now, Jesus is walking down the road with the disciples. And he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say you're this and some people say you're that. And now he makes the you know, million-dollar question. Who do you say that I am? And now, for the first time, we get this great confession of Peter, right? You are the Christ. You're the Christ. And we're all like, they get it. Yay! It's taken eight chapters for you to get this. But you finally get it. This guy you're with who's doing all this stuff, who you continue to, to not believe in for some reason, he really is the Christ. And we're all excited. The blind can see you go to the next paragraph <laughs> and this is where Jesus for the very first time reveals to his disciples okay now you know who I am I'm gonna die and what does Peter do rebukes him <laughs> and so Jesus says get behind me Satan right okay it's like I yeah okay maybe you're not seeing everything yet right I, I'm just saying it seems to me that Mark has set these stories up in such a way to give us the idea that the disciples are they're they're believing. They're, they're in the process. They're coming along in this. They, they're growing in their faith. Yes, they have failed and failed and failed and it's miserable and it's stupid and we laugh at them and we're like, how can you not see this? But there's something about this moment, something about this episode and this conversation that seems to turn a switch, at least for Peter, if not for others, and you begin to see a a change. The disciples will not be the same, really, from this point forward as we walk closer to Jerusalem and closer to the cross. And so, so maybe they don't fully understand, but they're, they're getting there. Three, three applications, three lessons for us from this as we think about these same things. Number one, I would point out to us that, that the danger that Jesus is warning the disciples about in this scene is the same danger that every one of us in this room is prone to. I mean, Jesus is turning around to these guys who, sh who had the most access to information. They had the most time spent with Jesus. And he's saying, listen, you realize you're under the same, in the same danger that Pharisees and Herod are? Of taking all of that, all that you've seen, all that you've heard, and purposely rejecting it in unbelief? That you can do that? Beware. Watch out. And I would say the same thing to us. Just because you you come on Sundays and you're part of a community group and you may read your Bible and you may listen to people on the radio or online or whatever because you know a lot about God, it doesn't mean you know God. And the same danger applies to you. In fact, 
a greater danger applies to those of us. The more we know, the more danger we're in because it's so easy to take all of that and, and just reject it in unbelief and walk away. Rebellion and watch out. Don't, don't be like them. The disciples, 11 of them, will heed this warning. One will not. One, despite all that he's seen and all that he's heard, is going to continue down the path of purposeful unbelief. And you know what happens to him in the end. So, I say to you, watch out. Number two, I would encourage you, I would very much encourage you with the example of Jesus' patience with those in whom faith is still forming. Because sometimes we're like, Lord, Lord, I believe. We're like the, the, the dad, right? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Why do I continue to struggle with my belief in you and your goodness and your kindness and your grace and your mercy? Why do I continue to, to try to make myself acceptable to you? Why do I continue to rely on my own power to overcome sin? Why? It's because... We're all on this journey still. And, and some of us have, have clearly placed our faith in Christ, and, and we are believers, we are brothers, we are children of God, and yet even for us, right, we're still, we're still growing. But, but for those around who have not made those decisions, who have not placed their faith in Jesus, understand that oftentimes that takes time. Don't lose patience. Do not lose patience. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep, keep making Christ clear to them. Keep, keep loving them. Keep pursuing them. Don't, don't walk away. Jesus had like a group of, Ed calls us pinheads, the elders. These guys are like beyond that, right? Because they're with Jesus, and they're like, they should get it. Like, and he patiently walks that path with them as their faith continues to form and grow until finally whew, the blinders come off and they can see, you are the Christ. They still have a long way to go, but man, his patience with them is a challenge to me. And number three, take courage, take confidence, take hope in the amazing transformation that comes when one believes. Because as I mentioned a few minutes ago, from this point on, you're going to notice a change in the disciples. They're not perfect. They're going to continue to blow it. They're going to continue to make mistakes. So it, it's, Don't be looking for fireworks, but there's a difference. Once they have come to believe, once they have come to understand, things begin happening. And so I say to you, wherever you're at right now in your walk with Christ, your confidence may be low, you may be struggling with sin, struggling with this or that, understand that the gospel always changes people. It always changes people. It may be fast for some, slow for others, but if the gospel has truly come to bear, it makes changes. And so we have made it through the point I said we would make it through. Um, Chris is going to pick up in Mark here in February. I'm excited. I'm going to take notes for all the things he does wrong. Okay? Give him an email every week. I'm kidding. Um, I have grown so much through this. It's going to be really hard to be away from Mark for a while now. I'm going to miss Mark. Um, but I hope as we walk away from it for a month, or ha month and a half or so here, that you continue to understand, think through, and grow from all that we are seeing happen here in this gospel story that we thought we knew so well, but sometimes I wonder how well we knew it in the first place. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer?